Book the Second, The Golden Thread, Chapter One, Five Years Later. Telson's Bank by Temple Bar was an old-fashioned place, even in the year 1780. It was very small, very dark, very ugly, very incommodious. It was an old-fashioned place, moreover, in the moral attribute that the partners in the house were proud of its smallness, proud of its darkness, proud of its ugliness, proud of its incommodiousness. They were even boastful of its eminence in those particulars, and were fired by an express conviction that, if it were less objectionable, it would be less respectable. This was no passive belief, but an active weapon which they flashed at more convenient places of business. Telson's, they said, wanted no elbow room. Telson's wanted no light. Telson's wanted no embellishment. Noakes and Company might, or Snooks Brothers might, but Telson's, thank heaven. Any one of these partners would have disinherited his son on the question of rebuilding Telson's. In this respect, the house was much on a par with the country, which did very often disinherit its sons for suggesting improvements in laws and customs that had long been highly objectionable, but were only the more respectable. Thus it had come to pass that Telson's was the triumphant perfection of inconvenience. After bursting open a door of idiotic obstinacy with a weak rattle in its throat, you fell into Telson's down two steps and came to your senses in a miserable little shop with two little counters where the oldest of men made your check shake as if the wind rustled it, while they examined the signature by the dingiest of windows, which were always under a shower bath of mud from Fleet Street, and which were made the dingier by their own iron bars proper, and the heavy shadow of Temple Bar. If your business necessitated your seeing the house— you were put into a species of condemned hold at the back, where you meditated on a misspent life until the house came with its hands in its pockets, and you could hardly blink at it in the dismal twilight. Your money came out of, or went into, wormy old wooden drawers, particles of which flew up your nose and down your throat when they were opened and shut. Your banknotes had a musty odor, as if they were fast decomposing into rags again. Your plate was stowed away among the neighboring cesspools, and evil communications corrupted its good polish in a day or two. Your deeds got into extemporized strong rooms made of kitchens and sculleries, and fretted all the fat out of their parchments into the banking house air. Your lighter boxes of family papers went upstairs into a barmecide room that always had a great dining table in it and never had a dinner, and where, even in the year 1780, the first letters written to you by your old love or by your little children were but newly released from the horror of being ogled through the windows by the heads exposed on Temple Bar 
with an insensate brutality and ferocity worthy of Abyssinia or Ashanti. But indeed, at that time, putting to death was a recipe much in vogue with all trades and professions, and not the least of all with Telson's. Death is nature's remedy for all things, and why not legislations? Accordingly, the forger was put to death. The utterer of a bad note was put to death. The unlawful opener of a letter was put to death. The purloiner of forty shillings and sixpence was put to death. The holder of a horse at Telson's door, who made off with it, was put to death. The coiner of a bad shilling was put to death. The sounders of three-fourths of the notes in the whole gamut of crime were put to death. Not that it did the least good in the way of prevention. It might almost have been worth remarking that the fact was exactly the reverse. But it cleared off, as to this world, the trouble of each particular case and left nothing else connected with it to be looked after. Thus Telson's, in its day, like greater places of business, its contemporaries, had taken so many lives that if the heads laid low before it had been ranged on Temple Bar instead of being privately disposed of, they would probably have excluded what little light the ground floor had in a rather significant manner. Cramped in all kinds of dim cupboards and hutches at Telson's, the oldest of men carried on the business gravely. When they took a young man into Telson's London house, they hid him somewhere till he was old. They kept him in a dark place, like a cheese, until he had the full Telson flavor and blue mold upon him. Then only was he permitted to be seen, spectacularly poring over large books and casting his breeches and gaiters into the general weight of the establishment. Outside Telson's, never by any means in it, unless called in, was an odd job man, an occasional porter and messenger who served as the live sign of the house. He was never absent during business hours unless upon an errand, and then he was represented by his son, a grisly urchin of twelve, who was his express image. People understood that Telson's, in a stately way, tolerated the odd job man. The house had always tolerated some person in that capacity, and time and tide had drifted this person to the post. His surname was Cruncher, and on the youthful occasion of his renouncing by proxy the works of darkness, in the easterly parish church of Houndsditch, he had received the added appellation of Jerry. The scene was Mr. Cruncher's private lodging in Hanging Sword Alley, Whitefriars. The time half-past seven of the clock on a windy March morning, Anno Domini, 1780. Mr. Cruncher himself always spoke of the year of our Lord as Anna Domino's, apparently under the impression that the Christian era dated from the invention of a popular game by a lady who had bestowed her name upon it. Mr. Cruncher's apartments were not in a savory neighborhood, 
and were but two in number, even if a closet with a single pane of glass in it might be counted as one, but they were very decently kept. Early as it was, on the windy March morning, the room in which he lay abed was already scrubbed throughout, and between the cups and saucers arranged for breakfast and the lumbering deal table, a very clean white cloth was spread. Mr. Cruncher reposed under a patchwork counterpane, like a harlequin at home. At first he slept heavily, but by degrees began to roll and surge in bed until he rose above the surface with his spiky hair looking as if it must tear the sheets to ribbons. At which juncture, he exclaimed in a voice of dire exasperation, Bust me if she ain't to et it again. A woman of orderly and industrious appearance rose from her knees in a corner with sufficient haste and trepidation to show that she was the person referred to. What? said Mr. Cruncher, looking out of bed for a boot. You're at it again, are you? After hailing the morn with this second salutation, he threw a boot at the woman as a third. It was a very muddy boot, and may introduce the odd circumstance connected with Mr. Cruncher's domestic economy, that, whereas he often came home after banking hours with clean boots, he often got up next morning to find the same boots covered with clay. What? said Mr. Cruncher, varying his apostrophe after missing his mark. What are you up to, agger-a-waiter? I was only saying my prayers. Saying your prayers? You're a nice woman. What do you mean by flopping yourself down and praying agin me? I was not praying against you. I was praying for you. You weren't. And if you were, I won't be took the liberty with. Here, your mother's a nice woman, young Jerry, going a praying agin your father's prosperity. Prosperity. You've got a dutiful mother, you have, my son. You've got a religious mother, you have, my boy. Going and flopping herself down and praying that the bread and butter may be snatched out of the mouth of her only child. Master Cruncher, who was in his shirt, took this very ill, and turning to his mother, strongly deprecated any praying away of his personal board. And what? Do you suppose, you conceited female, said Mr. Cruncher, with unconscious inconsistency, that the worth of your prayers may be? Name the price that you put your prayers at. They only come from the heart, Jerry. They are worth no more than that. Worth no more than that, repeated Mr. Cruncher. They ain't worth much, then. Whether or no, I won't be prayed again, I tell you. I can't afford it. I'm not a-going to be made unlucky by your sneaking. If you must go flopping yourself down, flop in favor of your husband and child, and not in opposition to em. If I had had any but an unnatural wife, and this poor boy had had any but a unnatural mother, I might have made some money last week instead of being counter-prayed and counter-mined and religiously circumvented into the worst of luck. 
Blast me, said Mr. Cruncher, who all this time had been putting on his clothes. If I ain't, what would piety and one blowed thing and another been choused this last week into his bad luck as ever a poor devil of an honest tradesman met with? Young Jerry, dress yourself, my boy, and while I clean my boots, keep an eye upon your mother now and then, and if you see any signs of more floppin', give me a call, for I tell you, here he addressed his wife once more, I won't be gone again in this manner. I am as rickety as a hackney coach. I'm as sleepy as laudanum. My lines is strained to that degree that I shouldn't know, if it wasn't for the pain in em, which was me and which somebody else. Yet I'm none the better for it in pocket, and it's my suspicion that you've been at it from morning to night to prevent me from being the better for it in pocket, and I won't put up with it, Agora waiter, and what do you say now? Growling. In addition, such phrases as, Ah, yes, you're religious too. You wouldn't put yourself in opposition to the interests of your husband and child, would you? Not you and throwing off other sarcastic sparks from the whirling grindstone of his indignation, Mr. Cruncher betook himself to his boot-cleaning and his general preparation for business. In the meantime, his son, whose head was garnished with tenderer spikes, and whose young eyes stood close by one another as his father's did, kept the required watch upon his mother. He greatly disturbed that poor woman at intervals by darting out of his sleeping closet where he made his toilette with a suppressed cry of, You are going to flop, mother. Hello, father. And after raising this fictitious alarm, darting in again with an undutiful grin. Mr. Cruncher's temper was not at all improved when he came to his breakfast. He resented Mrs. Cruncher's saying grace with particular animosity. Now, Agora waiter, what are you up to? At it again? His wife explained that she had merely asked a blessing. Don't do it, said Mr. Cruncher, looking about, as if he rather expected to see the loaf disappear under the efficacy of his wife's petitions. I ain't a-going to be blessed out of house and home. I won't have my whittles blessed off my table. Keep still. Exceedingly red-eyed and grim, as if he'd been up all night at a party which had taken anything but a convivial turn, Jerry Cruncher worried his breakfast rather than ate it, growling over it like any four-footed inmate of a menagerie. Towards nine o'clock, he smoothed his ruffled aspect, and, presenting as respectable and businesslike an exterior as he could overlay his natural self with, issued forth to the occupation of the day. It could scarcely be called a trade, in spite of his favorite description of himself as a honest tradesman. His stock consisted of a wooden stool, made out of a broken-backed chair cut down, which stool, young Jerry, walking at his father's side, carried every morning to beneath the banking-house window that was nearest Temple Bar, where, 
With the addition of the first handful of straw that could be gleaned from any passing vehicle to keep the cold and wet from the odd-job man's feet, it formed the encampment for the day. On this post of his, Mr. Cruncher was as well known to Fleet Street and the temple as the bar itself, and was almost as ill-looking. Encamped at a quarter before nine, in good time to touch his three-cornered hat to the oldest of men as they passed into Telson's, Jerry took up his station on this windy March morning with young Jerry standing by him, when not engaged in making forays through the bar to inflict bodily and mental injuries of an acute description on passing boys who were small enough for his amiable purpose. Father and son, extremely like each other, looking silently on at the morning traffic in Fleet Street, with their two heads as near to one another as the two eyes of each were, bore a considerable resemblance to a pair of monkeys. The resemblance was not lessened by the accidental circumstance that the mature Jerry bit and spat out straw while the twinkling eyes of the youthful Jerry were as restlessly watchful of him as of everything else in Fleet Street. The head of one of the regular indoor messengers attached to Telson's establishment was put through the door and the word was given. Porter wanted. Hooray, father! Here's an early job to begin with. Having thus given his parent Godspeed, Young Jerry seated himself on the stool, entered on his reversionary interest in the straw his father had been chewing, and cogitated. Always rusty. His fingers is always rusty, muttered young Jerry. Where does my father get all that iron rust from? He don't get no iron rust here. Book the Second Chapter Two A Sight You know the old Bailey well, no doubt, said one of the oldest of clerks to Jerry the messenger. Yes, sir, returned Jerry in something of a dogged manner. I do know the Bailey. Just so. And you know Mr. Lorry? I know Mr. Lorry, sir, much better than I know the Bailey, much better said Jerry, not unlike a reluctant witness at the establishment in question. Then I, as a honest tradesman, wish to know the Bailey. Very well. Find the door where the witnesses go in, and show the doorkeeper this note for Mr. Lorry. He will then let you in. Into the court, sir. Into the court. Mr. Cruncher's eyes seemed to get a little closer to one another and to interchange the inquiry, What do you think of this? Am I to wait in the court, sir? He asked as the result of that conference. I'm going to tell you. The doorkeeper will pass the note to Mr. Lorry, and do you make any gesture that will attract Mr. Lorry's attention and show him where you stand. Then what you have to do is to remain there until he wants you. Is that all, sir? That's all. He wishes to have a messenger at hand. This is to tell him you are there. 
As the ancient clerk deliberately folded and superscribed the note, Mr. Cruncher, after surveying him in silence until he came to the blotting paper stage, remarked, I suppose they'll be trying forgeries this morning. Treason. That's quartering, said Jerry. Barbarous. It is the law, remarked the ancient clerk, turning his surprised spectacles upon him. It is the law. It's hard in the law to spile a man, I think. It's hard enough to kill him, but it's very hard to spile him, sir. Not at all, returned the ancient clerk. Speak well of the law. Take care of your chest and voice, my good friend, and leave the law to take care of itself. I give you that advice. It's the damp, sir, what settles on my chest and voice, said Jerry. I leave you to judge what a damp way of earning a living mine is. Well, well, said the old clerk. We all have our various ways of gaining a livelihood. Some of us have damp ways, and some of us have dry ways. Here's the letter. Go along. Jerry took the letter, and remarking to himself with less internal deference than he made an outward show of, you are a lean old one, too, made his bow, informed his son in passing of his destination, and went his way. They hanged at Tyburn in those days, so the street outside Newgate had not obtained one infamous notoriety that has since attached to it. But the jail was a vile place, in which most kinds of debauchery and villainy were practiced, and where dire diseases were bred that came into court with the prisoners and sometimes rushed straight from the dock at my Lord Chief Justice himself and pulled him off the bench. It had more than once happened that the judge in the black cap pronounced his own doom as certainly as the prisoner's, and even died before him. For the rest, the old bailey was famous as a kind of deadly inn-yard, from which pale travelers set out continually in carts and coaches on a violent passage into the other world. Traversing some two miles and a half of public street and road, and shaming few good citizens, if any. So powerful is use, and so desirable to be good use in the beginning. It was famous, too, for the pillory, a wise old institution that inflicted a punishment of which no one could foresee the extent. Also for the whipping post, another dear old institution very humanizing and softening to behold in action. Also, for extensive transactions in blood money, another fragment of ancestral wisdom, systematically leading to the most frightful mercenary crimes that could be committed under heaven. Altogether, the Old Bailey at that date was a choice illustration of the precept that whatever is is right, an aphorism that would be as final as it is lazy, did it not include the troublesome consequence that nothing that ever was, was wrong. Making his way through the tainted crowd, dispersed up and down this hideous scene of action, with the skill of a man accustomed to make his way quietly, the messenger found out the door he sought, 
and handed in his letter through a trap in it. For people then paid to see the play at the Old Bailey, just as they paid to see the play in Bedlam, only the former entertainment was much the dearer. Therefore, all the Old Bailey doors were well guarded, except, indeed, the social doors by which the criminals got there, and those were always left wide open. After some delay and demure, the door grudgingly turned on its hinges a very little way and allowed Mr. Jerry Cruncher to squeeze himself into court. What's on? he asked in a whisper of the man he found himself next to. Nothing yet. What's coming on? The treason case. The quarter in one, eh? Ah, returned the man with a relish. He'll be drawn on a hurdle to be half hanged, and then he'll be taken down and sliced before his own face, and then his inside will be taken out and burnt while he looks on, and then his head will be chopped off and he'll be cut into quarters. That's the sentence. If he's found guilty, you mean to say, Jerry added by way of proviso, They'll find him guilty, said the other. Don't you be afraid of that. Mr. Cruncher's attention was here diverted to the doorkeeper, whom he saw making his way to Mr. Lorry with the note in his hand. Mr. Lorry sat at a table among the gentlemen in wigs, not far from a wigged gentleman, the prisoner's counsel, who had a great bundle of papers before him, and nearly opposite another wigged gentleman with his hands in his pockets, whose whole attention, when Mr. Cruncher looked at him then or afterwards, seemed to be concentrated on the ceiling of the court. After some gruff coughing and rubbing of his chin and signing with his hand, Jerry attracted the notice of Mr. Lorry, who had stood up to look for him and who quietly nodded and sat down again. What's he got to do with the case? asked the man he had spoken with. Blessed if I know, said Jerry. What have you got to do with it then, if a person may inquire? Blessed if I know that either, said Jerry. The entrance of the judge and a consequent great stir and settling down in the court stopped the dialogue. Presently the dock became the central point of interest. Two jailers, who had been standing there, went out, and the prisoner was brought in and put to the bar. Everybody present, except the one wigged gentleman who looked at the ceiling, stared at him. All the human breath in the place rolled at him like a sea or a wind or a fire. Eager faces strained round pillars and corners to get a sight of him. Spectators in back rows stood up not to miss a hair of him. People on the floor of the court laid their hands on the shoulders of the people before them to help themselves, at anybody's cost, to a view of him, stood a tiptoe, got upon ledges, stood upon next to nothing to see every inch of him. Conspicuous among these latter, like an animated bit of the spiked wall of nougat, Jerry stood, aiming at the prisoner the beery breath of a whet he had taken as he came along and discharging it 
to mingle with the waves of other beer and gin and tea and coffee and what not that flowed at him and already broke upon the great windows behind him in an impure mist and rain. The object of all this staring and blaring was a young man of about five and twenty, well-grown and well-looking, with a sunburnt cheek and a dark eye. His condition was that of a young gentleman. He was plainly dressed in black, or very dark gray, and his hair, which was long and dark, was gathered in a ribbon at the back of his neck, more to be out of his way than for ornament. As an emotion of the mind will express itself through any covering of the body, so the paleness which his situation engendered came through the brown upon his cheek, showing the soul to be stronger than the sun. He was otherwise quite self-possessed, bowed to the judge, and stood quiet. The sort of interest with which this man was stared and breathed at was not a sort that elevated humanity. Had he stood in peril of a less horrible sentence, had there been a chance of any one of its savage details being spared, by just so much would he have lost in his fascination. The form that was to be doomed to be so shamefully mangled was the sight. The immortal creature that was to be so butchered and torn asunder yielded the sensation. Whatever gloss the various spectators put upon the interest, according to their several arts and powers of self-deceit, the interest was, at the root of it, ogreish. Silence in the Court Charles Darnay had yesterday pleaded not guilty to an indictment denouncing him with infinite jingle and jangle, for that he was a false traitor to our serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth, prince, our lord the king, by reason of his having, on diverse occasions, and by diverse means and ways, assisted Louis, the French king, in his wars against our said, serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth, that was to say, by coming and going between the dominions of our said, serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth, and those of the said French Louis, and wickedly, falsely, traitorously, and otherwise evil, adverbiously, revealing to the said French Louis what forces our said serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth, had in preparation to send to Canada and North America. This much, Jerry, with his head becoming more and more spiky as the law terms bristled it, made out with huge satisfaction, and so arrived circuitously at the understanding that the aforesaid and over and over again aforesaid, Charles Darnay stood there before him upon his trial, that the jury were swearing in, and that Mr. Attorney General was making ready to speak. The accused, who was and who knew he was, being mentally hanged, beheaded, and quartered by everybody there, neither flinched from the situation nor assumed any theatrical air in it. He was quiet and attentive, watched the opening proceedings with a grave interest, 
and stood with his hands resting on the slab of wood before him, so composedly that they had not displaced a leaf of the herbs with which it was strewn. The court was all bestrewn with herbs and sprinkled with vinegar as a precaution against jail air and jail fever. Over the prisoner's head there was a mirror to throw the light down upon him. Crowds of the wicked and the wretched had been reflected in it and had passed from its surface and this earth's together. Haunted, in a most ghastly manner that abominable place would have been if the glass could ever have rendered back its reflections, as the ocean is one day to give up its dead. Some passing thought of the infamy and disgrace for which it had been reserved may have struck the prisoner's mind. Be that as it may, a change in his position, making him conscious of a bar of light across his face, he looked up, and when he saw the glass, his face flushed, and his right hand pushed the herbs away. It happened that the action turned his face to that side of the court which was on his left. About on a level with his eyes, there sat in that corner of the judge's bench two persons upon whom his look immediately rested, so immediately and so much to the changing of his aspect that all the eyes that were turned upon him turned to them. The spectators saw in the two figures a young lady of little more than twenty and a gentleman who was evidently her father a man of a very remarkable appearance in respect of the absolute whiteness of his hair and a certain indescribable intensity of face, not of an active kind, but pondering and self-communing. When this expression was upon him, he looked as if he were old, but when it was stirred and broken up, as it was now in a moment on his speaking to his daughter, he became a handsome man not past the prime of life. His daughter had one of her hands drawn through his arm as she sat by him, and the other pressed upon it. She had drawn close to him in her dread of the scene and in her pity for the prisoner. Her forehead had been strikingly expressive of an engrossing terror and compassion that saw nothing but the peril of the accused. This had been so very noticeable, so very powerfully and naturally shown, that starers who had had no pity for him were touched by her, and the whisper went about, Who are they? Jerry, the messenger who had made his own observations in his own manner, and who had been sucking the rust off his fingers in his absorption, stretched his neck to hear who they were. The crowd about him had pressed and passed the inquiry on to the nearest attendant, and from him it had been more slowly pressed and passed back. At last it got to Jerry. Witnesses. For which side? Against. Against what side? The prisoners. The judge, whose eyes had gone in the general direction, recalled them, leaned back in his seat and looked steadily at the man whose life was in his hand, as Mr. Attorney General rose to spin the rope, grind the axe, and hammer the nails into the scaffold.